podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. We're working in partnership with Charles Tirrett across the ashes. As part of the partnership, Charles Tirrett are offering the chance to win a £500 voucher to spend on their website. To enter the competition, simply follow the link in the podcast description and also look out for it on our social channels. It's an amazing prize. I'd very much recommend getting involved, but hurry up. The competition closes very, very soon. Hello and welcome to a bonus Christmas episode of the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll briefly run through all the news from the world of cricket this week before getting to the fun bit, answering your questions. We had one golden rule for the questions, as long as they're not about the men's ashes in any way at all, they're good to go. I'm Yazron and with me today over Zoom is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Um, first off, Phil's just tested positive for the cron, so I should ask, how are you doing, Phil? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm all right. I've got the Rona. Came through this morning. It's been in. It's been in the post for a while. My my wife has has had it for the last week and a bit. So it's obviously kibosh Christmas. Um, but you know, I'm I'm pretty confident that our brave boys down in Melbourne will will do me a do me a happy turn and and turn this this otherwise rather grim shit show into a, into a rousing rousing finale as we get through Christmas and into the new year. Yeah, in a way, this could be one of your best Christmases ever if England pull it off at the MCG. Yeah, it could be. It could be. <laughs> um, as much as I don't want to ruin this cheery festive special by talking about the men's ashes, let's start with that and get out of the way. I've not told Joe and Phil this, but I've got a timer on my phone. And when it hits the 10-minute mark, what, whatever we're talking about, where, if someone's halfway through a sentence or whatever, that's, that's it. That's the end of our men's ashes chat. Don't give Phil the first question then. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with the reported changes. Various journalists out there in Australia are reporting that England are set to make as many as four changes for the MCG test. Zach Crawley coming in at the top for one of Burns or Hamid. Uh, Ollie Pope dropping out probably for Johnny Bairstow. And Jack Leach and Mark Wood probably returning to the bowling attack. Um, Joe, the the last couple of days have, have bordered on farce on occasion, I think. Chris Silverwood defending England selections in both of the first two test matches. Dressing room leaks. Ali Martin in The Guardian reporting in detail about Silverwood getting very angry in the dressing room and going where no coach has ever gone before in daring to show replays of batters getting out. Um, and then there's this video emerges today of Haseeva Mead and Rory Burns batting the nets, batting on one leg three days ahead of a test match. What have you, what have you made of the last couple of days? The last one I genuinely thought was a joke. I... I, I didn't really understand that. I saw that last night after a few drinks and sort of laughed without really understanding what I was laughing at. Um, and then woke up and realised it was a genuine thing. Um, you know, maybe it's the maybe that's the turning point in the ashes. Um, the leak thing was interesting. The detail in Ali's piece was was uh, extensive. Someone's obviously come out of that meeting and thought, I'm just going to tell the press about this. Um, some of the, the little bits in there as well that... that, that Someone has said the important thing is getting through the first 20 balls and Joss Butler said, no, it's not. It's about batting for longer. I mean, is that genuinely a conversation that's been had? I mean, um, it didn't inspire me with a huge amount of confidence and uh, Chris Silverwood's uh, refusal to acknowledge they've made any mistakes up to this point is, uh, is hugely frustrating. Um, I think 
people would probably have a lot more respect if he just held his hands up and said, look, we've got one or two things wrong. Um, but they still plough on. The plan's working. We'll, we'll continue as we are. And uh, the comeback is on. The, the thing that's, that's remarkable for me about that report is that it's, it's deemed remarkable enough to, to leak and say, like, uh, like as Yaz says, surely batters should be watching how they're getting out lots. I mean, I've had to watch Rory Burns' leg stump get ripped out about 50 times. It's, it's only fair that he has to watch it one or two times as well. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and, and yeah, as you say, the, whoever was saying, like, it's really important, like, you've got to focus on those first 20 balls. Uh, and also that it's, that it's Butler saying, you know, we've got to focus a bit more. It does, it does feel like it's something that should be the norm. Like, after every game, you should maybe look at where you lost it and have a bit of a chat about it rather than that being something that you think of doing when you're 2-0 down in the ashes and everything's kind of all falling apart already. I kind of wonder, who, who, who do you reckon is the most likely player to have said we just need to focus on the first 20 balls? Ollie Pope for me. Or, or based, on, based on their record, Rory Burns, given that we know once he gets past zero, he, he's uh, unstoppable, yeah. He's unstoppable, although that can't be quite so true after the last few knocks. But Yeah, that, that is true. Um, Phil, what have you made of the, of the days since the Adelaide test? Uh, I'm, I agree with Ben, first and foremost. O- Ollie Pope is is prime candidate, I would say, for that one, uh, because of his obsession with the first 20 balls. Um, anyway, uh, my, uh, I have to be absolutely honest with you here. Um, I've, had, I've had real life stuff to deal with, so I haven't really been following it that closely. Um, I was so upset through the Adelaide Test match. You know, I wrote something kind of humorless and aggressive, but I stand by it regarding... Regarding Silverwood's position, I, th- I think I wrote that after a day or two of the Adelaide Test match, and that risable, um, not me, Gov press conference he gave uh, rather rather articulates our, our concerns here. Um, you know, he has been given a hell of a lot of responsibility, too much responsibility, and the uh, the this kind of overload onto his shoulders, bearing in mind that he is a rookie at this level anyway, has no international experience and, and is still, in terms of years, quite a young coach. Uh, it's, it's shown to be um, the folly that we all kind of thought it was at the time, really. How can you be simultaneously the, the national selector and also the coach? There needs to be a kind of creative tension there. There needs to be clear demarcation between the two roles. I think that's obvious, and there isn't. Um, and we wonder why. And we wonder if it's even slightly to do with finances. The ECB is not as rich as it once was. Uh, either way, it's, it's, a, it's a botched job and it's rather playing out like that. And I can understand the siege mentality on, on Silverwood's part, but uh, he's not doing himself any favours really at the moment. Um, uh, as for the stuff that came out in Ali's piece, well, he, he did it really well and his, his ear is very close to that dressing room. Um, but I didn't think there was much in that personally. Uh, you know, if you're not throwing a few cups and saucers around the dressing room after stinking the place out for the last three, two or three weeks um, and playing only really a fraction of your quality from top to bottom, really, with one or two isolated exceptions, if you're not having a, having a few harsh words being said then there's something something fundamentally amiss so it's a good thing right it's a good thing absolutely it's a good thing um I, I think changes are inevitable but we'll probably come to that I don't know I'm aware I'm aware that we're on the clock we've actually got four minutes left I've wanted uh Zach Crawley in from the start um I know he averages about six uh and all the rest of it uh don't get me wrong I don't think he's he's you know he's Stan McCabe Mark II or anything but 
Um, I, I'd like to see him in. Um, and there will probably be a change in the middle order as well. And obviously, would have come back. Uh, my instinct is that they'll actually put up a better show of it in Melbourne than they have done. But that, that is starting from a very, very, very low base. I wondered, actually, because obviously when there are leaks, you sort of wonder if that's a, a sign of, you know, discontent within the dressing room and that sort of thing. I actually wonder if this was sort of leaked as a kind of a good news kind of thing. Like, mm. you know, look, we, we, we are concerned about this. We are trying to make it better. I'd also say that, yeah, as we were discussing before the show, that one thing that shows the folly of the sort of the coach-selector uh, combined job is the fact that England announced that T20I squad today. So Chris Silverwood has either sort of taken, a, you know, half a day out in the middle of an Ashes tour, sort of sit down and wonder whether to pick Matt Parkinson or Liam Dawson for a West Indies squad a few months down the line, or he's just signed off something that probably Owen Morgan has sent to him. And either way, it shows just how ridiculous the situation is, basically, that like it is, especially in this era where, you know, no player can do it all to expect a coach to be able to do it all and oversee it all is just ridiculous. Yeah, I like to think that um, after giving the, the dressing room a very harsh talking to, that he was scrolling through Phil Salt's Lanka Premier League records, deciding whether he or Tom Cola-Cadmore should, should be added to the squad. O- on Australia, there's a, some news. Uh, Mitchell Stark is an injury doubt, but will probably be fit for the Boxing Day test. Um, Scott Boland, a 32-year-old seamer who's played 17 white ball games for Australia, has come into the squad as injury cover. Um, and Justin Langer has backed Marcus Harris to come good. He will play at the MCG. Uh, Harris averages 22.2 in test cricket, which is one of the worst averages of all time for an opening batter who's played 10 or more tests. But his career averages more than Crawley, Hamid and Sibley have averaged for England this year. So still probably getting the England team. Um, and related to the series, Marnus Labuschagne has gone top of the ICC test batting rankings. It's the first time someone out of the Fab Four has gone top since November 2015 when... A.B. de Villiers was ranked number one. Joe? Yeah, also Hazelwood's out, isn't he? Which you didn't, you didn't mention there. I think he's been ruled out of this test match. Has he definitely been ruled out? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Hazelwood's out as well. <laughs> Stay on top of it, guys. And I think, yeah, the, the story I said was Hazelwood out, Stark likely to play. Ben, you've got, you've got some um, insight on Labuschagne going top, kind of how that compares to some of the greats of the game. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a very, very high rating that he's got at the moment like very few players get above uh 900 and he's at 912 i think so that's higher than Peter ever achieved higher than lara ever achieved higher than tendulkar ever achieved i mean obviously the rankings are a bit flawed and the, in that cutoff period he's basically only played in australia with a couple of tests in england so there's other things to prove but it does just show how remarkable it starts with his career has been i guess that he's already up there and he's like still kind of only a baby in terms of test matches played. Mm. Nice one. Well, we've um, finished the men's ashes chat with, with a minute to go. So well done. We didn't need to hear the timer, which is excellent news. Um, moving on, England have announced a 16-man squad for their T20I series against West Indies, which starts four days after the ashes ends. Paul Collingwood will be in charge for that trip. None of the test guys are going. I'll read out the squad. Uh, it's Morgan, Moeen, Banton, Billings, Dawson, Garton, Chris Jordan, Sakiba Mood, Mills, Gloucester Seema, David Payne, Adil Rashid, Jason Roy, Phil Salt, Reese Topley, and James Vince. I guess the omission of Matt Parkinson's interesting. David Payne being in the squad is interesting again. I know he was in the squad for the ODI series against Pakistan, but he's not played, uh, not only he's not played international cricket, but I don't think he's played any leagues outside of um, the T20 Blast and the 100. Um, any any further takeaways from that squad from anyone? Um, yes, yes. When you say interesting, what are you really saying there? When And, and also, when you're running through the list, how come David Payne gets, gets his county and role before the use of his name. Are you trying to kind of indicate something here? 
Well, what are you trying to say? I think it's likely that some of our listeners don't know who he is. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I for one think that um, County Stalwart, all round lovely bloke and hero of the, of the Shires, David Payne, who's been playing for about 11 or 12 years now at county level. It's far more important that he gets used to conditions uh, in, in the Caribbean than someone like Matt Parkinson. Absolutely far more important that, that David Payne bowls those tricky middle overs uh, in a T20 T20 nonsense somewhere or other uh, than, than Matt Parkinson, who um, is lovely. And I know that we bang on about him and we run the risk of being a bit hackneyed on, in this. But I mean, how, ma- how, many more, how many more times does this kid have to, have to be, be rejected, ousted, thrown to the walls, um, wrapped up in some bib and, and ferrying drinks around for, before people start to say, is there some kind of agenda at work here? It's baffling. It truly is baffling. Um, who, who cares? Who cares about the results of these games in March, really? Who, who, who gives a toss? Um, just have a look. Have a look at a couple of players when we are crying out for something or somebody that just offers a different skill set to what we've seen time after time after time. We know what doesn't work and what doesn't work. We've seen it. I know it's a different format, but it's all, it has to be seen in the round. Mm. Yeah, I guess one thing I'd say on Pogs and... I guess you could spin it positively and say that him not being included in the squad means that he's more likely to be able to play franchise cricket, something that he's not actually done that much of, considering how good he is. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a potential silver lining, but that's not where England are coming from, is it? England no. are coming from that they don't want him in the squad for whatever reason. It's, you know, I think it's different. I think we should separate Parkinson, the, the potential test cricketer and Parkinson, the white ball cricketer, because with, with the red ball, it is still all about potential and what he might be able to do. I think T20 cricket, he's, he's further down the line than that. And it's that it feels like we're getting to the point where Parkinson's going to perhaps just have to accept that his England career is on hold until Owen Morgan decides that he's going to call it a day that, that for whatever reason, Morgan doesn't, appear to rate him based on the selections the fact that Liam Dawson is getting called up for that squad in the Caribbean I mean what what do they expect to learn from that um and then I mean looking further ahead if Joss Butler comes in Joss Butler obviously has, has played with with uh, Parkinson at Lancashire has captained him at Manchester Originals will, will, will perhaps hold him in higher esteem than than Morgan seems to um but it is an odd one. I guess Morgan would say that there is another T20 World Cup around the corner already, um, October, November next year. So he wants to just pick the players who he thinks are going to be in that squad. And he thinks Dawson is ahead of Parkinson. So, you know, that's the choice they've made. Um, but it is it is a confusing one to, to get our head around. And, and, you know, we perhaps we do exist in a bit of an echo chamber here and that we all think he should get a go and we all tell each other we think that and then that reinforces it. But... We're not the only ones who think that. Um, increasingly, Owen Morgan is in the minority, but obviously his opinion holds a huge amount of sway. And as Ben said earlier, it'd be fascinating to know how much impact Chris Wood even has in those selections. Yeah, it, it, is an, it is a tricky one that England are in because there is just there are so many global white ball tournaments, as we've discussed before, from now until like 2030, there's like one a year. So they do have to balance giving game time to those players who are realistically in contention, but like slightly further down the line and also giving experience to new players and seeing how good they might be. And I think that they, they have generally leaned too much towards the former. So it's not just Parkinson. There's guys like uh, Harry Brook would have been quite nice to see in this squad, having had such a good summer last year. And you look at it's not just Dawson, like it is possibly guys like James Vince, who are likely to be sort of reserves come that T20 World Cup time, but who 
England do know what they're about when they do like this would be a chance to to properly experiment and it, it feels more second string than experimental I guess which is uh, you know it's, it's not an awful thing but it's just something that they have tended to do I guess on a couple of the young-ish batters who are included Tom Banton's recall is interesting I guess he's, he's been out of form for quite a while he's not got many runs uh, going back probably 18 months really and also Phil Salt he's, he's had a really really good winter hasn't he Ben uh, yeah, he was a, he had an, an extraordinary T10 campaign where he was scoring at sort of like well well over two uh, two runs a ball and was uh, pretty good in Lancashire Premier League as well. There was quite a fun video, I don't know if you saw, of uh, him being dismissed by, is it uh, Benura Fernando, I think? And then uh, Benura Fernando does the uh, the Salt Bay thing, like, you know, the uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, if the, uh, the, Turkish, the Turkish chef does, obviously a reference to his surname but yeah Phil, Phil Sol is really good and, and, and England will obviously love the way he goes about his cricket in a sort of Jason Roy-esque like my like me getting out literally does not match I don't care about that at all I just want to try and score as many runs off the balls I'm lucky enough to face as possible and that's and England will really really rate that and see him as a as an heir to that sort of role I think. A week ago England announced a 17 strong squad for the multi-format Women's Ashes series that takes place in the new year as well as an A squad that will tour Australia at the same time. Uh, I'll run through those two squads quickly. The full Ashes squad is Heather Knight, Tammy Beaumont, Maya Bouchier, Catherine Brunt, Kate Cross, Freya Davies, Charlie Dean, Sophia Dunkley, Sophie Eccleston, Tash Farrant, Sarah Glenn, Amy Jones, Nat Skiver, Anya Shrubsall, Manny Villiers, Lauren Rinfield-Hill and Danny Wyatt. The A squad is Emily Arlott, Lauren Bell, Alice Capsey, Alice Davidson-Richards, Georgia Elwis, Kirsty Gordon, Eve Jones, Beth Langston, Emma Lamb, Byronie Smith, Ellie Threckold and Izzy Wong. I guess it's interesting that Boucher is in the main squad. She's not played much international cricket um, and her domestic record isn't great, but they, they clearly rate her. And Charlie Dean caps off an amazing year. She didn't have a pro contract at the start of 2021 and now, now she's going on an Ashes tour. Um, and Ben, some good stories in that A squad as well. Yeah, well, obviously the one that stands out is, is Alice Capsey, who obviously talked about a bit 16. Has she, has she turned 17 yet? I'm not sure. Yeah, she's 17 now. But, but still remarkable either way. Uh, nice that Kirsty Gordon's sort of back, back in the frame. Um, and Eve Jones as well, who's uh, sort of been sort of a domestic kind of trier, I guess, for years. She's long been sort of rated as sort of like the best and most reliable uncapped batter in the country. Uh, but they've sort of wondered if she hasn't quite had the, the power game, if she's more of like a player who can bat time. People often said that she might be more suited to, to test cricket, but then there's not, not many women's tests that get played and they tend to then be picked from the existing pool of, of women's players. And now with just a few more tests being played, uh, maybe that's helped her come into the reckoning too. India's test series in South Africa gets going on Boxing Day. Some injury news from South Africa. Anrik Norkia has been ruled out the series. Um, South Africa will probably end up fielding an attack of uh, pace attack of Rabada Ngidi and the returning Dwan Olafur, which will be um, a storyline to watch out for in that series. India don't have Rohit Sharma, who's also injured. Mayank Agawal will likely partner KL Rahul up top, um, but it'll be interesting to see who bats in the middle order. Rahane is no longer the vice captain, so his position is more precarious than ever. Vihari is seen as an overseas specialist, and Aya did really well in that New Zealand series earlier this winter. There's also no Ravindra Jadeja, so the balance of that India side isn't that easy to predict. Um, Joe, that's, that's a really big series, isn't it? India have never won in South Africa before. They lost in 2018, and despite India's recent good results and South Africa struggling a little bit, that could still be quite a tight series in South African conditions. Yeah, it should be. It's, it's gutting that Nokia is not part of that series. That had been a 
we've not seen that much of him in Test cricket. South Africa haven't played a, a huge amount of Test cricket, uh, and him up against that gun Indian batting lineup would have been really kind of box office stuff. So that that's a real shame. Um, yeah, it's a it's come at an interesting time for Indian cricket with Kohli now only the Test captain and not having the other the bits. This will be a real opportunity for him to kind of. If there's any suggestion that his his grip has been loosened on on power in Indian cricket, if he can come away with a, a series win in South Africa, as you say, there India's first, then that will really kind of reaffirm his status in Indian cricket. And also, he needs some runs as well. He needs. We've talked about that hundred is what two years now, more than two years since yeah, uh, an international hundred in any format. Um, he will be more desperate than ever, given recent developments, to to kind of correct that record and, and come away with a series win. Um, it will probably be a lot more interesting to watch than the Ashes. Oh no, I was meant to laugh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're, you're not allowed to mention it anymore. You're not allowed to mention it anymore. Um, moving on, some news, some bit sad from Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan opener Abid Ali was rushed to hospital after complaining uh, of chest pains during a cardiasm trophy clash. He is currently in a stable condition and has had a couple of successful operations. Um, elsewhere, 19-year-old Muhammad Herrera became the second youngest Pakistani to hit a tri- first-class triple century. He's the nephew of Shoaib Malik, so remember the name. Um, I think the Pakistani first-class structure is, is is a bit like the Australian one. There, there are only six or so teams, so the, the quality is quite high. If you look through the, the list of players in the scorecards, there are yeah a lot of players you'd recognise from international cricket. Um, and in New Zealand, Ajaz Patel has been ruthlessly discarded after his historic tenfer. He's not been included in their squad for the Bangladesh series that's coming up shortly. Um, New Zealand reverting to their tried and tested team balance and home soil. Um, I think it's still a bit harsh not to have him in the squad. They named 13 players. You could have at least have him have him there. Ben, you, you enjoyed a moment of Trent Bolt winning a game with the bat today. Yeah, uh, and a frankly ridiculous game of cricket. So uh, Northern... Brave against Canterbury Knights. I think they changed their names a, a few times in those uh, New Zealand regions. But yeah, I think those are the two teams. Uh, looked like it was sewn up quite a few times for Northern Brave. They bowled out Canterbury Knights for 107, I think. And then Catane uh, Clark, I think is how you pronounce the, uh, the opening batter's name. He got off to a flyer. So they were 30 for naught after two overs. That's uh, already nearly a third of the runs down, two overs gone. Then he hobbles off, uh, retired, hurt. Uh, they still seem like they're going to... Uh, they're going to get there. I think when it go, there's eight balls left, they need 10 runs to win. They've got five wickets in hand. That should just be s- completely sewn up. Uh, and then they end up losing uh, four wickets for three runs, I think, in a space of six balls. So it's down to the last two. Catane uh, Clark walks back in, um, uh, having uh, hobbled off injured. He'd actually, as he hobbled off injured earlier, he'd given his batting gloves to some kids in the crowd, presumably thinking that his day was done. Uh, he wouldn't be needed again. The game was won. But I don't know if he had to ask for gloves back. Or if he just uh, might have had a second power, I suppose. Uh, but he comes back in, uh, gets a single to get Trent Bolt at number 10 back on strike, who uh, has only hit two sixes in his T20 career before today in 147 games, uh, proceeds to hit the last ball of the game, 4-6. Uh, the commentary is amazing. Uh, just uh, uh, sort of an Ian Smith-like voice, I guess, just shouting. I think there's one phrase he lifts exactly from Ian Smith, but the, uh, the, best, the best bit is just the ending, which goes, Trent Bolt! I am losing my mind. <laughs> An amazing moment. And, uh, and, and yeah, I take it all back with Super Smash. It's the, uh, it's the tournament everyone should be watching. Well, excellent. Well, now we're on to the, the fun bit of the show uh, where we're answering listeners' questions. These were amazing. So thank you so much for all of them. Let's start with one on county cricket. Jill asks, who is everyone's favourite 90s county cricketer? I'll accept uh, answers from the 2000s if the, if the young'uns are 
too young. Joe, do you want to go first? I mean, I could be anyone from Kent's 995 Axe Equity and Law Sunday League winning side, really. But uh, <laughs> I thought I would go for Trevor Ward, who a few of our listeners might not have heard of. He was kind of hard, hard-hitting opener ahead of his time in, in some ways, although not like that good. So he'd, he'd come out and kind of smash a quick 30 off, off 20 balls, um, often opening with Matthew Fleming. So that was always good fun on a Sunday afternoon. Um, moved on to Leicester later on. And I remember, because I would have been about 10 or 11 at the time, and I just, I just could not understand why he wasn't in the England side at all. Just absolutely clouded by what, by what I saw in, in front of me, which actually wasn't all that much either. Uh, so he was, he was definitely a favourite. But you, Matt Walker... I liked all of them, but Nigel Long. I didn't didn't like Nigel Long. Always had an issue. I never thought he was worth his place <laughs> inside. Do you have a problem with Nigel Long, the umpire? I know it's the same man, but do you have a problem with him? Uh, yeah, I don't say I've got a problem with him, but um, he's not my favourite umpire. Okay. Who is? It's got to be Michael Goff, surely. The 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 assertiveness. He's too, he's too good. It's like saying Sachin Tendulkar's your favourite batsman. But mine, for what it's worth, to fill this terrible p- period in our podcast history, um, is Marais. Um Little little little, yeah. little Marais, Erasmus. He's an absolute gun. Don't care w- whether he makes good decisions or not. Although he is generally well respected, I just love his vibe. Love the way he goes about his business. Uh, he just cheers me up whenever I see him. So he's comfortably hands down my favourite. By the way, Joe, I don't want you to to, to lose track of your your Kent Axer Equity and Law ninety four side, but um, I knew you were going to say Trevor Ward when the question came up this morning. I was thinking about who other people would say, and I knew top of the list. I knew it'd be Big Trev. I knew it. Yep, yep, yep. You speak about him more than you might otherwise realise. You know, you're a very well rounded individual, but. Trevor Ward is, is there in your consciousness. And I, I knew you'd say him. Who's in your consciousness from the 90s, Phil? Well, um, the, the, the problem I've got here is that when the, the first people I thought, I recognised them as county cricketers, but they've all played international cricket. So I don't know, don't know if this counts, but... Yeah, I think that counts, that counts. Okay, all right. Well, my favourites... Pete, Peter Such is one of my all-time favourite cricketers. Um, uh, lovable, much underrated helped Essex win a number of championships, but was also my first coach. So he coached me batting. England's worst ever batsman ever was my first ever batting coach. Uh, And he was basically trying to make ends meet at the time. He he played a bit at Notts, a bit at Leicester, not really made the grade at either club, partly because his fielding was was not much and his batting was hilarious. But he landed at Essex and they, they brought him on and he was a kind of, Two's player-ish, really, in the, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but he found his natural home at Essex, really. And he was, he was making ends meet over the winter, doing some coaching. And I got to know him as a, I'd have been, what, 10 or 11. And he got me into the Essex team, right? He sorted me out, got me into the Essex team. So when he had two or three good years and ended up making his debut for England in 93, um, I bunked off school that day, bought a load of dry-roasted peanuts and Coca-Cola and sat and watched him take take six for over the first two days of that game. And that was one of my, my all-time favourite cricketing memories because I felt for the first time like attached to it, you know, in a sort of folksy sort of way. So Peter Sachs is one of my all-time favourite cricket people. Um, again, keeping it parochial, Stuart Law was phenomenal for Essex and later for, for Lanks, but I watched it mainly, mainly at, at Essex. Um, 
John Crawley, I, I, I had this habit of, of watching John Crawley play well in county cricket. Um, he always seemed to get runs whenever I was, when I, whenever I happened to go and watch Lanks and then Hampshire and so on. And a joy, really, and, and a much unfulfilled international talent. Uh, and the other one that, that I thought of this morning was Gihan Mendis, who was an opening bat at Lancashire, a bit similar to Trevor Ward in, in Joe's shout. Ahead of his time, Sri Lankan descent um, and had a kind of dash and daring to him. This would have been, again, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, an opening batsman at Lancashire. I always used to wear a, a, a short sleeve jumper. Um, he had, you know, Imran Khan-style locks as well. And he just used to go out there, stay leg side of it, and absolutely pulverise it through the offside. Um, was very hit and miss. Was a bit, uh, bit cantankerous, apparently. A bit tricky to manage in the dressing room. But my sort of cricketer, and again, one of these cricketers, again, if he, if he played now, then he'd have been a world name. Mm. I've got loads more, but let's move on. <laughs> We've got a lot to get through. Um, ben, have you got a standout player from the 2000s? Yeah, well, continuing the theme of, I guess, hard-hitting uh, openers is uh, uh, Ali Brown for me. Uh, in that, obviously, I was, I was quite a late convert to cricket and bit having sort of like a maths background or whatever. Uh, was sort of playing catch up, I guess, when I first started really, I was like, yeah, this is the, the thing I want to be, you know, this is what I want my favourite thing to be. So going through all these like lists of records and stuff, uh, and then just going through that list of uh, highest individual scores in list A cricket and seeing this guy on there twice from like, what what would have been like 10 to 15 years ago at the time, uh, and the, making these scores that even now seem kind of like unfeasible and ridiculous. Uh, and in team totals that were also on FIFA predictions, thinking like, and also a guy that I'd never heard of, it wasn't like it was looking back and seeing, you know, Lara or Tendulkar had done this. It was just a guy at that point who I'd never heard of, who was on this list twice as having played like these absolutely ridiculous innings, uh, kind of spokes. Uh, and I didn't realise then that, uh, you know, there was actually sort of a lot of history with Shidali Brown and played more for England or whatever. I just thought this was a kind of a every, every, every dog has his day, but twice kind of thing uh, that he just had a day out a couple of times. How soon into your... Um cricket watching experience where you're looking up the highest ever scores in this day cricket well pretty soon i guess when you go to a, a, a boarding school there's often not a huge amount to do uh, and then when you you're because you're, also a lot of the getting into cricket originally it wasn't able to like watch it so much as following it on crick info and then you're able then to get very quickly into just this like absolute massive records and that's obviously that's the dream uh, i also have a, i've I picked out a, i don't know if it's a favorite umpire but uh, i was a uh, <laughs> I was reading about the, uh, the, the, the Shakurana Mike Gatting affair uh, recently, and I just I, I, I love Shakurana's vibe basically, as, as sort of like one of the great heels, uh, to use a wrestling term in, uh, in cricket, and especially as an umpire who was supposed to be these guys who sort of like control the game and, uh, and sort of keep it going and sort of calm things down. And he just absolutely didn't do that at any point whatsoever. It was just antagonizing wherever he could. Wherever he could. I think that's kind of great. So you went to a boarding school? Yeah. You knew that. I didn't know you'd, got, you'd been a boarder. Yeah, it's all sorry. beginning to fall into place. Yeah. Don't, you don't have to apologise, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> my, my first favourite county cricketer, uh, I was thinking about my first favourite, my first memories of county cricket were that Gloucester team that was really good at the start of the 21st century. Um, and Ian Harvey was definitely the most fun player in that, in that team. So definitely him as, as my favourite. But that was just a very fun team overall. Like Craig Spearman batting the top. Mark Elaine, Jack Russell, I think John Lewis was in the team by then, so that was, that was 
Very fun. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, Jack asks, what's a wicket that cemented itself in your mind? It doesn't have to be particularly special, just one you vividly remember and you can't seem to shift. Um, ben, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, all, all the ones I could think of were special in some sort of way. Like, one of the ones when I close my eyes and I see it on a loop is uh, Archer in the Bangladesh game in the World Cup, the one that hits the top of off stump and then the ball goes to six. That was just like, it's just so beautiful. Like, the arc the ball follows is, is, is really lovely. Um, obviously, a couple of absolutely awful ones, uh, like the Ijaz Ahmed one, uh, the, uh, the sort of the, the, the weird no shot thing that takes out his middle stump, um, and uh, uh, Ian Bell in that test in India, the one where he is it first ball that he comes down and just uh, plops it straight to, yeah, that wasn't great. Uh, and then also the Maxwell leave, um, which is obviously now quite a they, they use it as a meme sort of thing. Like my parents aren't home, and then he he, he, he runs out and they just. <laughs> like looks like he's going to smash it, and then leaves it, and it crashes in the middle stump. Uh, those are the ones for me, I guess. But yeah, they all, they're all they're all sort of special. Like there's, I guess there's there's a, a sort of a type of dismissal that you have in your mind. The ones that you sort of shadow bat. So the sort of the the rearing one off the length that you sort of go like that and fend it, and it takes your glove. That but that's not a specific dismissal. That's just a type of dismissal that is kind of uh, burned in there, I guess. Joe, what about you? Well, I actually I initially read this as dismissals this year, so I was thinking purely from this year. Uh, the first ball of the series we're not talking about will take some shifting from my memory, I think. Um, but also earlier this summer, um, Boomer cleaning up Bairstow at the Oval, second innings, uh, having what bowled Pope in, the, I think, the previous over. Uh, and, you know, Bairstow gets bowled quite a lot in Test cricket, but I think a lot of a lot of batsmen really got done by that one. It's just an outrageous piece of bowling. from uh, That was probably the most memorable spell for me of, um, from the Test summer. Um, but then if, we, if we're going a bit further back the combination of uh, Ben talking about leaves and Ian Bell um, brought to mind Bell at Centurion in 2009 I think it was uh, facing Paul Harris who's obviously never spun the ball in his life but Bell inexplicably decides to play for turn that was never coming and just leaves a straight one uh, I think it's middle stump that gets hit rather than off stump as well from memory Could he have been leaving it on length? Um pfft. I mean, it hit about halfway up, so not, <laughs> not very well if he was. Um, and that that series, Bell was coming under serious fact. I think by that point, he still hadn't scored a 100 in innings where another England batsman hadn't, which was a stat that kind of stuck with him for a while. But then only two games later, or maybe one game later at Durban, he scored a, a brilliant, brilliant 100 and a big win um, for England at Durban, which was kind of quite a, a big moment in, in Bell's career. But yeah, one of those tours that kind of sums up the, the, the beauty and... Um, madness of Ian Bell all in all in one that Ian Bell stat sums up for me how good that England team was that a legitimate complaint about a batter was they only get hundreds when someone else has scored 100 um not not a problem that the current England team have Phil what about you first two ones that came to my head um were James Vince at Brisbane and Michael Atherton at Lords in 93 and they're both runouts. uh so it's not really a sort of celebration of, of cricketing greatness of, you know, Bumrah or Wazim or whoever hooping around the corners. It's more just human pain and tragedy and what might have been. And, and for some reason, my brain just took me there straight away, uh, clear as day, vividly. Uh, the Vince one is your classic sliding doors moment. And the Atherton one had a very significant effect on me in my formative years following the game. Um, it didn't change my outlook of cricket, but it made me understand it a lot more. Uh, 
And I realized that the whole thing is predicated on human fall fallibility uh, and, and farce. Uh, the, and then I picked out three or four others just straight away, and I'll be brief, but ones that I've actually seen. So stuff that I've seen live and stuck in my mind. Um, Craig White's first ball dismissal of Lara at the Oval in 2000 um, was an extraordinary moment. And uh, Lara to be bowled round his legs from uh, a player who hadn't really been particularly heralded, but sort of for that year, that summer, encapsulated a kind of emergent England side after a few years of, of misery and toil. Uh, and to clean up Lara in the big one, when they were 2-1 up going into that Oval Test match and they needed, obviously, to win to, to, to get that monkey off their back that had been hanging around for years, 30-odd years it was, 31 years, I think it was, um, since they'd beaten the West Indies in a series. Uh, so that was an extraordinary moment and went on to win that game. Um, Satchin at the Oval in... What would it have been? 20... 2011? Tim Bresnan. I think he was on 80-something 80, 80 or other. And he was on 99 Test Match 100s. And everyone knew this was going to be his last ever hit in England. And Tim Bresnan got him out with one that was clipping the top of leg stump, I think it was. I can't remember who the umps was. Although I've got a feeling it might have been Rudy Curson, But I might be throwing him under the bus unfairly there. Anyway, he was given out for 80-odd. And I remember irrespective of who you were following, irrespective of the score in the series and all the rest of it, the air just sucked out of the ground, realising that, you know, as ever, we're on the verge of history and cricket does its thing. It rips it apart for you right at the death. And the other one, of course, is Anya's final wicket uh, at, at Lords in 2017 um, to get rid of, of India's number 11, uh, Gayakwad. And, yeah, that, that day... That day's probably my, my all-time favourite day, day at the cricket, I would say. I, I was kind of in a, in a mode of thinking of like, what were my first favourite things, if that makes sense. And I think one of the first test series I properly properly threw myself into, uh, in terms of like watching most balls, would have been England in West Indies 2003-04. Um, West Indies series are just quite good to watch from a view, viewing time. Like you, After school, you can watch pretty much the whole thing. Um and that series, you obviously had the Harmison seven for nothing, but it's actually the, the Hoggard hat trick that sticks in my head the most. Uh, so I think he got Ganga and Sawan out caught in in the gully region, I think both times. And then hat trick ball was the Shiv Chanderpole. And it's a classic right arm swing bowl dismissal to a left hand bat batter. Um, full pitching on middle, uh, swinging into them, absolutely plumb. Um, and I used to be able to swing the ball away. So Hoggard was my favourite cricketer back then. Um, so seeing him do something special was, was quite cool. And I think that was the, the first series where I was like properly obsessed. I'd liked cricket for a while, but that was the first series I was properly, properly obsessed with it. Um, Joe Harmon, modest to a fault, hasn't mentioned cleaning up that 13-year-old in the game he played <laughs> earlier this summer. First ball. Gave him the send-off as well. It was a beautiful moment. That always sticks in my mind. Do you know what? I was going to mention it, but then I remembered um, a <laughs> mum of one of the players messaged us afterwards and I thought it would, it would seem a bit cheap to bring it up again. Um, within a few months, but it was it was wind assisted. I would I would admit, um, but yeah, it was, it was a beauty, no doubt. About it it. We didn't get to see how good he was because you got him out so early. But judging by how good the rest of that team of thirteen year olds were, he, he was probably very very good. He was meant to be their best player, genuinely. <laughs> of course, of course, he was. 
not just giving myself a pat on the back. That was, that was, the, that was the review afterwards. Um, Matt asks, if you could gift wrap one moment from the 2021 cricket year and give it to a member of the pod, what would you choose and who would you give it to? I, I've thought long and hard about this and I am um, giving Ben a framed copy of Shane Warne's tweet during the England-India series where he, he, he wrote, here's a thought for the second innings. Crawley opens with Archer, broad at three, and say tee off, brackets, not recklessly, but aggressive. And then basically listed out what he thought the England order should be, which had Sibley at eight, folks at nine, um, Archer opening and broad at three. Did he really? He's winding, winding, winding us up, right? No, he, ge- he genuinely tweeted that. That was when England were getting bowled out for nothing in India earlier in the year. It's a paintball test, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyone else got anything? I'll jump in here because um, I also wanted to get something framed and given to Ben. Um, we, honestly, we haven't planned this. Clearly, we haven't planned it. I'd print out and frame the web page of the Daily Mail's hatchet job on Woke Ben Gardner and give wrap <laughs> it to the great man. I think that would be mine. Blow it up, A1 style, <laughs> stick it above your bed. I think Ben's With already done that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, that'd be right. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, 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 I'd hang that up. Uh, mine's just quite nice. I, I just, uh, I, I was imagining it's sort of an NOT situation, so I thought I'd get. Joe an NFT of uh, either Kent winning the T20 blast or that that Jordan Cox fielding effort on the boundary, uh, which I thought must have been quite a nice moment because uh, because it, it was I mean it was it was a nice moment for me even with no emotional connection to Kent you know Darren Stevens saying get us the final and I'll win it uh, quite just it was just a nice game. Okay, Would that make you Christmas, Joe? That, I mean that's very thoughtful. I still don't really understand what NFTs are, but I'm I'm nonetheless grateful. <laughs> so you'd you'd get a confused but grateful response, I think. To that yeah I, I have absolutely no idea what they are either um joe have you got a present for anyone yeah, mine's for phil actually um given that he's he's struggling with covid and not gonna have much company um so i have gift wrapped uh dan lawrence's test debut at, at Gaul for phil which had been uh obviously much heralded by phil particularly uh, on this show <laughs> for a good couple of years uh and then it eventually arrived and uh yeah lawrence stepped up obviously made a a beautiful 73 in the first innings and then a gutsy 21 to see them home in the second innings. And the next star of English batting was born. Um, obviously it hasn't quite worked out like that since, but there is still time. And I can, know can, I, can I ask you lot, just sorry to, to mention it. We're not mentioning the thing, but do, do you think he's, he's got a chance at that level? And do you think objectively he was, reasonably treated considering he's not really even a part of the conversation and three innings ago he was 20 minutes away from making his maiden test 100 against the best team in the world that might be a leading question I don't know I'm just interested because I'm not allowed to talk about him anymore because I get a load of stick for it and I get that so I'm just interested in other people's opinions well it's interesting to see uh, Yaz asked a bunch of us to pick our our sides for the Melbourne test this is definitely ashes um and i think did all of us pick lawrence or, or four of us pick lawrence i think three out of four which again might be that echo chamber in in kind of working working well um but you know my argument was we still don't know so you can bring back in besto and he's got this track record of failure lawrence we, we still don't know and and he's certainly i don't think there's much doubt he's got the attitude and confidence for it but we're, we're still none the wiser really um whether his technique is going to hold up against the best bowlers, against the quickest bowlers. Um, but I think this series, given the way it's going, is a, is a great chance to to learn quite a lot more heading heading into next summer. 
Um, so that's non-committal, isn't it? I, we've tipped so many English, young English batters to come good and they haven't done it. I'm reluctant to do so again, but I think he's got as, as, as good a chance as, as most of them, really. I'd still put Pope at the, at the top, despite his travails, but I, I don't think Lawrence is, is too far behind. Um, we've, we've absolutely got to see more of him. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say Dan Lawrence nailed on for 100 tests, but I think the one thing that's hugely working in his favour is how, and I know his test record so far doesn't stand out, but I think he's shown that he can like work situations out on the fly. Like, uh, and you know, he made his debut in that Sri Lanka series where you know conditions are pretty alien. Played brilliantly in that last test in India when you know everyone else couldn't get a run, and he was was batting at number seven. Uh, and just he 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 had figured out a way to score runs in a situation where no one else was able to do that. And even similarly in that New Zealand innings, I think he started really scratchily. And that and that's the one. I guess concern is that he does seem like a very scratchy starter, but then when he when he gets in, he kind of he does seem like he can work out situations, which is quite a valuable trait, I think, and something that uh, might not exactly translate from counter cricket, where you get presented with the same situation quite a lot. I guess that that's the one thing I really like. Uh, in, in terms of the, the gift of Phil, I wonder if it'd be the innings itself or the uh, the interview that his dad gave to the BBC. <laughs> yeah, that would have been better actually. That would have been a better shout. Yeah. I'm broadly on the same page as the other two. Uh, I think he should... I'd, I'd want to see him play ahead of Bairstow. Uh People keep going on about bairstow has got 100 in Australia, but he averages 27 in Australia from a reasonable sample size. Um, I know that's the same as what Lawrence averages in Test cricket, but Lawrence hasn't played that much. Bairstow averages 21 over three years. Um, Lawrence made a name for himself by scoring loads of runs in Australia. Um, I'd like to see him play. Do I, do I think... You can have a long test career, I don't know. I think uh, a little bit similar to Sibley, he looks so bad when he gets out early on. I think that is held against him a little bit more than it would do somebody who plays in a more classical way. Um, but yeah, he, he's from eight test matches, you can already list four very good innings, I think, which which is which is decent going and definitely better than a lot of the other English guys this year. Um, anyway, Phil, um, nice subtle hijacking of the pod there. Um, but move, moving back to listeners' questions, um, I think this is my favourite question. The Run Out blog asks, what's the worst you've ever seen a test player bat for 100? Anyone want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, Jim and Mark Richardson, the Kiwi oh, the opener. Great shout, Joe. Kiwi, uh, Kiwi spinner, number number 10, number 11 turns test opener and got a very good record. I looked up again this morning, averaging 45 in test cricket. But God, was he awful to watch. He was just absolutely terrible. And there was one test in particular, 2004 Lord's Test, which is better remembered for, obviously, Strauss's debut 100, NASA running out Strauss, NASA scoring his 100 and then retiring. But in the midst of that, Richardson just stunk the place out with... I was there for certainly the final day when England chased the runs down and an earlier day. And I can't even remember if I saw Richardson score 100 or not because it was so bleak. But he got 93 off 266 balls in the first innings and then 101 from 309 balls in the second. So to all intents and purposes, he had a great game, but no one will have enjoyed watching it. Um, I can't remember if it was bad in the sense that there were catches put down or terrible shots played, but it was just horrendous to watch. Um, And yeah, I think although his test career was very productive, not many will have kind of fond memories of actually having watched him back because it was it was kind of Gary Kirsten on a bad day. Yeah, the, the only thing I think that people enjoyed watching him back was uh, when he got cramped that time, uh, which is one of the funniest cricket videos that's out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he, he, I got, he's probably in the 90s, I think, as in, as in he's, he's scored 90-odd runs. 
uh, and goes for a sweep shot and it's quite a hot day. And then so it's, it's like a, a half a beat after you play the sweep shot, which makes it funnier. He then just does this kind of quite melodic high pitched scream and twists around. There's loads that's funny about it, like the way he stretches his bat out to get it back into the crease. Uh, obviously the commentator's laughing. It's quite like the Wilhelm scream. I don't know if you know the sound effect that's used in quite a lot of old Hollywood movies. Uh, it's basically exactly that. Uh, and then, then there's a slow-mo where it's like pitch shifted down about two octaves. It's an amazing moment. Um, and the, of course, the other thing he's famous for is being incredibly slow. So he would race after every series that New Zealand played, he would race the slowest member of the opposition team. So he, he raced Ashley Giles around the outfield at the conclusion of this series. I think he rest, raced Darren Lehman as well. I think he beat Giles. I think, I think he just about came out on top, but he would come out in this proper like sprint suit. Um, it was good. It was kind of good amateur days. This was actually test cricket and you've got a bloke kind of celebrating how slow he is against another bloke celebrating how slow he was. Not enough of that these days. Um, any others? Well, obviously I've got loads. Uh, I'll, I'll keep them very brief, I promise. Um, in no particular order, Matthew Hayden's 380 should be banned. Uh, line through that one. Um, you can't disregard a 380. You've got to explain a little bit more than that. Yeah, you can. You can completely disregard it. It was, it was ugly and awful and cruel uh, and unnecessary. Um, Mike Gatting's otherwise heroic 117 at Adelaide 94-5. Bless him, shouldn't have been on the tour. Didn't get more than 20 in any other innings. Was uh, redolent of all the problems with English cricket at the time and yet somehow managed to scratch his way to 100 at Adelaide. I mean, you can absolutely say it was heroic. You can also say it was rather bleak. Um, The worst of the worst of the worst. Oh, yeah. Alistair Cook's pink ball nastiness. Edgbaston, West Indies. Awful, 290-odd. The worst of the worst, that I and again, I saw this live, um, was Paul Collingwood, otherwise estimable cricketer and all the rest of it. He made 100. I've spoken to Joe about this before. He made 100 at Lords against the West Indies on day two when England were already 380-odd and he comes out at six. This was the game that O.A. Shah played and he gloved one for six or seven odd, never played again. Peterson didn't get any either. But I think Cook had made 100. I think Strauss might have made 100. Collie comes in with England already on the verge of declaring. Um, no one likes to see it when the West Indies are playing at Laws. You want to see a good game. And Collie was dropped half a dozen times, bowled off 17 no balls, you know, skewed it up in the air. E- everything was down to third man or squirreled through mid-wicket, all the rest of it. And he, and he, he clambered his way to 100 that again appears on the on the honours board that hundred. It's, it's up there. It's absolutely up there. Again, that's another one. You should just stick a line straight through that one. Un, un, unforgivable knock by the great man. Uh, I've got one that might get me even more hatred from from the Daily Mail or somewhere else. Uh, it's it's not a Test hundred, but it is by a Test player. Uh, it's a uh, Sachin's hundredth hundred. Um, nice. I, I don't know if you if you remember the game or the situation, but he, he was batting quite well. Uh, he got to was on eighty off about hundred, which was a decent rate for. Uh, for then, uh, and he, I feel it felt like he did this quite a lot when he got close to the hundred, and it would kind of the enormity of it, and just you know, all, all, all those eyeballs would just eventually uh, tell. But then in this game, he just kind of dug in, and then spent absolutely ages getting from there to his hundred. It was like twenty off his last forty balls to get there. Uh, so India and India were only one down, I think. So having looked like they were going to make three fifty, and they're making up just shy of three hundred. Uh, Bangladesh then chase it down. And that's the, the, the loss that kind of knocks India out of that year's Asia Cup. So he's obviously got his amazing personal milestone, but it is sort of the, 
in, in my head, the epitome of the kind of match losing innings, I guess. And he's never recovered since, has he? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, that's, that's a very good answer. Again, m- mine's not a hundred. It's uh, it was a match-winning innings that was given a lot of praise. It was Jermaine Black was ninety-one against England last year. Um, it was a terrible innings. He uh, did not bat well. He was dropped a few times, played a miss loads, and everyone and he's like in all these, uh, including ours, end of end of year list as best innings of the year. It was it was um, it was it was rubbish. Like if you actually watched it, it's one of those that looks great in the scorecard because like oh he's. West Indies lost a few early wickets and he, he, he shepherded the, the, the lower middle order in the tail home, but he actually didn't bat that well. Um, similarly, brutal ODI cricket, but also from last summer, Alex Carey got 100 in a really good Australia run chase against England. Maxwell batted amazingly. Uh, Carey didn't, didn't at all, I thought, and then he got out at a really crucial point after Maxwell was out. Um, and they only actually won because Mitchell Stark um, hit Adil Rashid bowled the last over and Mitchell Stark hit him for six off the first ball. Um, so Kerry actually got out at a, at a very bad time and I don't think about that well in the innings up to then. So those are my two. Um, not really answering the question, but there we go. This should be fun. Uh, Luke asks, what's your most controversial or questionable cricket opinion? Um, his is, he believes that night watchmen should be banned. Um, we were asked a variation of this question by Crickvis' Ben Jones where uh, we would reveal other panellists um, most controversial opinions rather than saying what, what our, our own ones are but I think that's that's potentially a dangerous game to be playing um, we're not playing that game yeah we're not going to do that um, does anyone want to be brave enough to go first here yeah I've, I've got one I've been wanting to get off my chest um, and I appreciate this is coming from a, a very privileged position where I don't have to pay for many test tickets myself but I don't care about over rates I, I just don't and I wish we didn't talk about them as, as much on this podcast, on, on commentary. If I'm, and when, even when I do pay for a test, test match day, if I go along and watch 87 overs, I don't come away furious that I've, that I've missed out on three. Um, and the amount of energy that goes into debating this topic, which I think on the, on the grand scheme of things, even within cricket, is not a particularly big issue. Um, yeah, I just, I just don't mind that much. It just doesn't, doesn't get me going, apart from the fact it gets me going when everyone talks about it. That's a good answer. I, I find this quite difficult because a lot of my, what I think are controversial opinions are just like whether or not I rate a player or not. And it sounds a bit harsh saying so-and-so shit, so-and-so shit. Um, <laughs> I'll cherry festive. You're just going to write off a series of careers just based on... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, I get, so what am I to... One, uh, the 10-11 win in Australia, slightly overhyped. Uh, Australia weren't that great. Uh, there's one. Number two, and I really don't want to spend time actually arguing this, so let's just move on after I say it. Um, I, don't think, I, I don't think the sandpaper lot got long enough bands. I think the moralising was overdone, uh, but from a purely cricketing point of view, that's, like the, that's the purest form of cheating. And I think um, more, I think it, it, it could have been harsher, should have been harsher. From a purely green I didn't know you thought this. That's ludicrous. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> anyone else? Uh, I think four-day tests could be uh, a laugh and fun and progressive if everyone behaved themselves and bowled the, the overs that they needed to bowl during the day, but they won't. So it's probably a non-starter. But I think tactically and strategically, it could be an interesting option. And you'd certainly see, uh, I think... Many, many games of cricket that would be that would have an extra element if they were played over four full days. 
with maybe a hundred overs per day. Um, but that's not going to happen. And I'm probably going to get shot at dawn anyway for saying that. Um, I've, got, I've, got, I've got others, but I've probably mentioned them before. Um, as much as I love county cricket and the way that it's set up and all of that, I think if we were starting from scratch, would anyone in their right mind go anywhere near 18 clubs? Would anybody think that that's the best possible option for, uh, for professional cricket? So you're tentatively stepping towards cutting, culling a few counties for Christmas. Is this where you... I mean, I wouldn't, Joe, because I'm a romantic, mm. right? But I can absolutely understand the perspective that is, that is trotted out whenever England play badly. Um, that it's, it could do with, you know, streamlining, let's say. If we were starting from scratch, we wouldn't have 450 professional cricketers in a game that is not exactly overflowing with popularity. Shoot I me. too are. I would like to at least trial an extreme simplification of the LBW law. Like I don't, I just don't think it needs to be as complicated as I think it doesn't matter where it should, should maybe shouldn't matter where it's pitched or where it hits you on the pad. Uh, just if you don't hit it and if it hits your pad and it was going to hit the stumps, you're out. And that would be much simple, much simpler. And like you would remove some of the, one of the barriers to cricket that's often used for comic effect. I mean, I know people say it might encourage different types of bowling styles, but also People often say that lots of things will have lots of effects, like T20 will be the death of finger spin or you know, loads of stuff like that, and it just doesn't end up being the case. So I would like to see a trial of how it affects the game, even if like maybe for like a season in some sort of competition, uh, even if not an, an immediate switch to it. Yeah, as you have to cut that, that's madness. Well, I mean, no one has ever not got into cricket because of the LBW rule. I'm sorry. If you if you if you if you're that if you're that far in, that if you're that far in and you're kind of curious about the LBW rule. I mean, it's very, it's very straightforward to understand. Um, no, no one is not going to cricket because of the LBW rule. Uh, moving on, what's, what's your number two? Uh, I think a lot more catches are grounded than we think they are. And I also think that cricket needs a good definition of what the ground and being grounded is. Like, I know, I know there's foreshortening of the lens and whatever and that Tony Gregg did that, that nice segment, but your fingers can be underneath the ball and the ball can still be touching the ground. Those things are both possible. You can have a blade of grass sticking between, up to, between the fingers. Does that count as grounded? I don't know. I mean, it's part of the ground, uh, but it's, is it the ground? I don't really know. Uh, you get a lot of catches where there's a diving catch and the bowler sort of lands on their palms and those should be not out under the laws. Maybe you change the laws to do that, but that's just not considered. People just ignore it. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think a lot more catches actually touch the ground before a player is fully in control of the ball and of their body than uh, we actually see. And we probably just give catches credit because it's nice to give catches credit than because they actually fit within the laws as they are written. Bang on, you're suggesting if a blade of grass is coming up between two fingers and touches the ball, that could be considered a grounded ball. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that exactly, but I also think that there isn't really a definition of grounded in the laws. And that is one, not that implausible interpretation. I mean, if it's touching anything kind of outside the hands, like if that, that, that would count. I mean, but any, even if, you, if, if you're just taking, like you, you're imagining it as if there's no grass and it's just the dirt underneath, it is possible for you to have your fingers under the ball and your fingers to be spread in a way. And as the ball kind of presses down and presses into your fingers for it to press the ground, even if it is also pressing your fingers and your fingers underneath them at the same time. And that's something that doesn't just get discussed, I think. Uh, a final question is from Paul, who asks, what can we look forward to uh, for next year? 
Who you who are you folks tipping to be a breakthrough act either in red or white ball cricket for 2022? Will it be a Hamid Century, a Parkinson Fife from the Caribbean? Probably not that, uh, or someone else currently not on the radar. Um, yeah, I, I was trying to think sort of logically about this, about how a player is going to get into that England team, and there are quite a lot of spots there. But I think what we're going to see is quite an open first few rounds of the county season leading into the first test of the summer. And I quite fancy, kind of as he did this year, but he'll go a step further, Tom Abel to have quite a storming run to the start of the season and then to come in and actually kind of look the part uh, pretty early on. Like he's been, he's been around, says some tough times. Uh, he's highly rated. I really like watching him. Uh, I think there's quite a lot to like about him. So I could quite easily see that happening, I think. Um, yeah, one name we've talk, talk, talked about on the podcast before, but and he's in the squad for the Caribbean. I think George Garton, I think, will play quite a lot for England over the next year. And certainly in white ball stuff, he's a little bit of a way off in, in red ball. But uh, we saw at the C20 World Cup, England's seam attack is still not, it's the weak link in their side. Garton's now got a bit of IPL experience. Um, he's a good batter. He's brilliant in the field and he bowls quick. And he's left arm. I think there's a lot going for him. So I think we'll see quite a bit of him um, playing for England. And something I'm just looking forward to watching uh, Norkia in the flesh, uh, live test matches next summer against England. I think that'd be really, really good. Um, not one that England's batters will be looking forward to, especially, I wouldn't have thought, but um, it should be should be great watching. Um, yeah, just I'm looking forward to the, the four-day championship getting back to its original form. Um, I was cautiously keen on it at the start of the summer, last, last gone, but by the end of the summer, I think we'd realised that it wasn't really workable as it was. So I'm looking forward to that being returned to, to its, its natural state. Um, uh, and if you want a name, well, Tom Lamanby is an interesting one. And England are going to be looking for opening batsmen, opening batsmen who, can, who are more natural players than, than, than what they've currently been looking at or have been looking at over the last two or three years. And I know he had a horror run last year at the start of his, the start of his, of his summer having really played well the year before in that truncated summer. I think he's a very, very good natural player. And I thought it was interesting that he made runs in the white ball stuff this year, having made his mark in the red ball stuff. He's a very good player to watch. He's left-handed. He's tall. He's elegant. He plays the short ball well. I think it's natural for a player to emerge and then have a bad trot and then come round again. I think he's an interesting player to keep your eye on. Um, and again, you know, the, the merry-go-round will begin. It will begin again. Harry, Harry Brook is very close. And if no one can score runs in England's top six, then all of these names become very relevant. Mm. Uh, and hope springs eternal, as they say. Nice save for the county diehards out there, going from wanting to cull some of the counties to saying... I don't want to cull anything, most, uh, I don't want to cull anything. <laughs> um, in terms of looking forward to 2022 from an England point of view, I think Ollie Pope's drop in form opens a door that was previously closed to a whole category of players. So basically you're, you're stroke makers. So I think uh, it's not unfeasible for a player, I'm going to say it, someone like James Vince to make to, to make number six, uh, the number six spot their own. Um, Vince, has, I don't think has ever batted six for England, which seems, I think, to be his natural position. England, he's, he's tried to get in in the top three in recent years. Um, and if it's not Vince, someone like Vince, maybe like a Harry Brook, maybe like a Joe Clark. Um, could make that spot their their own because I think previously you kind of viewed it as Stokes bats five, Root bats four, Pope bats six, Keeper bats seven. Um, and that was looked like that was completely sewed up and that's now open to probably the most exciting type of batter that England have 
Um, and there, there are quite a few of them. I think that could be quite interesting in 2022, seeing who, who nails that spot down. Um, we all, sorry, there, there, were, there were other questions that I need to, need to address. Um, we had about 15 questions about the pod theme music. Yeah, which this is I the important stuff. Which I didn't really envisage happening. Um, so basically, the original theme music to the pod was... was um, was was written and produced by by Felix White of, of Maccabees and Tailenders fame. Um, I don't know if listeners knew that. Um, ben, you you said earlier today that it's available on Spotify if people want to just listen to the theme tune loads. Yeah, uh, it's under the artist's name Cosmo on the album called Cosmo, and it's the song is called Interlude. Uh, and Interlude is in brackets if you're searching for it. Uh, so yeah, go and dig that out. Possible, yeah. possible late run for uh, for Christmas number one. <laughs> that, yeah, already. Also, we yeah. I think on this, you know, there's there's it's been backwards and forwards as people are aware who listen to the show. But Felix's intro is literally the only cool thing about this podcast. So we couldn't we couldn't get rid of that. That was the one thing keeping us above water in, in that sense. Um, but I like the suggestion of of having one at the start and one at the finish. Have we done that? And I just haven't noticed. I think we've done that once or twice, but not not often. Um, it's been a, yeah, it's been a slightly inconsistent. And yeah, the other pod, pod music is actually composed and produced by Butch. So I guess we should have that one <laughs> in there as well. Um, yeah, well, we should make a decision. Are we are we going with Felix at the start, Butch at the end? Yeah. Cool. Agreed. Vote. Lots of nodding heads. That's what we're going to do then. Um I'm going to finish off with a couple of emails that we had in. Uh, one was from Chris, who um, wrote a couple of paragraphs about England's mishandling of spin bowlers, which we'll save for the next episode. But he finishes it by saying, can I also take this chance to apologise to the fellow cricket enthusiast I recently met at a wedding and spent a good hour explaining in detail why Matt Parkinson should get into the England team at 2am when I'm pretty sure he wanted to go to bed. Love the pod. Keep up the good work. Chris, we've all been there. We've all been there. Um, and then finally, Hannah writes in to say, hello all, uh, long time listening, first time emailer, no ashes talk, too depressing. There was for me a massive glimmer of hope from 2021. Have we really quite gotten over how good the ODI series against Pakistan in the summer was with a completely different team? For me, it was the best cricket of the summer. A group of guys, some of whom will probably never play international cricket again, having an absolute blast on an England shirt and winning against a really good Pakistan side. The last game of the series was probably the cricket match of the summer, in my opinion. So many impressive performances from those on the fringes showing us what the next five to ten years of ODI cricket might look like for England. I was beaming for a full week at a team who barely knew each other's names and yet acted like a fully-fledged team. Some may call it beginner's luck, but I call it bloody good stuff. And as a biased Lancashire lass, seeing Sakima Mood on show at the best of his abilities made me smile, whilst James Vince finally getting his England 100 brought a tear to my eye. Proper, proper good cricket. There are lots of things from 2021 that we need to review and improve, but I wanted to draw the eye to a series that is probably overlooked, but to me was the most entertaining part of the summer. I hope you're all happy and healthy, and I hope you enjoy your festive break. As someone fairly new to cricket, I'm a 2019 World Cup convert. Thank you for the podcast week in, week out, bringing my eye to all types of cricket from all around the world. It's been a great release to an otherwise middling year for us all. All the best, Hannah from Bolton. What a lovely, what a lovely email. And yeah, that, that was a truly amazing series, wasn't it? It's a great email. And I completely agree with, with Hannah as well. And I, the interview I did with John Simpson quite soon after that series was probably my favourite interview that I did of the year because it was just so heartwarming. He was still kind of trying to kind of come back down to earth after what had happened and just still obviously couldn't quite believe it. And Hannah's talking about us getting a kind of sneak preview of some of the guys who are going to be England stars in the years to come. Well, John Simpson obviously 
will probably never play for England again. And he was fully aware of that fact and, and just couldn't quite believe what had happened. And uh, there was something, yeah, very, very special about that whole series. I, I, I loved it too. Um, a nice memory to end the show on. Uh, that's all for today. Uh, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Ben. And thank you, listeners, for sticking by us in this quite chaotic pod and also all year long. Um, hope you all have lovely Christmases and we'll be back after the Boxing Day test. If you really enjoyed the show, please do consider leaving a nice review on the podcast app or leave us a five-star rating on Spotify. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.